Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, with interwoven stories and profiles, Memphis Rent Party begins where the greatest hits end. Gordon charts his own musical coming of age as he befriends blues legend Furry Lewis, Rolling Stones accompanist Jim Dickinson, and the high priest of indie rock Alex Chilton. Gordon's march through the city's famed recording studios and juke joints captures the spirit of Memphis and illuminates its musical legacy that lives on today. Elvis Costello calls it an emotional map of musical Memphis. If you don't know these characters, let Robert Gordon introduce you. If they are familiar to you, then you will enjoy the wit and modesty of his portraiture and perspective. Robert Gordon has been writing about Memphis music and history for 30 years and is the author of It Came From Memphis, Can't Be Satisfied, A King on the Road, The Elvis Treasures, and Respect Yourself. He won a Grammy in 2011 for his liner notes to the Big Star box set, Keep an Eye on the Sky. His film work includes producing and directing the documentary Respect Yourself, the Stax Records story, and the Emmy-winning Best of Enemies. We're incredibly fortunate to have him with us this evening. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Robert Gordon. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Um, my agenda is wide open. And... Um, while I have a couple passages marked I want to share and some videos, I kind of thought I would start with, uh, a, I want to know what y'all are interested in because we can talk about a number of things. So let me, I want to, I want to open with the, I know it's um, not normal, but I want to open with the Q&A. And I'm not going to answer the questions, I'm just trying to get a map of what to talk about. So anything in particular? Anybody's interested in? You want me to topics to hit? Don't be shy. So, yep. So, you know, I'm a big fan of respect yourself. So, where does this book come from? Okay, stacks. So, we'll we'll wrap stacks into this more. I'm just trying to get guideposts here for the for the dialogue. Anybody else? Yeah, you want something to say something? No. I'm sorry. I was turning to you. Yeah. Contemporary Memphis, okay, so we got Old Memphis and New Memphis. I always go for Old Memphis. Old Memphis. This is Pat Rayner. He's got a whole bunch of photos in my book and, uh, and, and lived most of the things that I just observed. She was, she was on the stage and I was, in the, I was the drunk kid in the audience who had a pen in his pocket. Anything, anybody else want to like throw any signposts out here? All right, you guys are going to make... Studios of Memphis, Sun Stacks. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, okay. <laughs> so, let's begin. Let me, let me first tell you how I got into this, and then we'll start to hit the old and the new and the contemporary scene. Um, I was a kid. I was uh, 14 in 1975 when the Rolling Stones played 
the this uh, big outdoor stadium concert, Fourth of July. Now in Memphis, the Fourth of July is going to be a swamp. It, we're we're in a swamp, and it's really hot. So apparently, no one told the Stones that um, it was really hot and that it wasn't going to cool off at night because they decided after Charlie Daniels played, after Jay Giles played, after the meters played, it was like 4.30 and doesn't get dark till like 9 and, and Mick thought his makeup was going to run if he went on during the day. So during this long interlude, uh, uh, at some point I remember having my back to the stage because a friend of mine had gone to get Coca-Cola's and it had been like two hours. And I was had my back to the stage looking for him and I heard this sound on the stage that really caught me. And it was an old guy with a really craggy voice picking acoustic guitar and kind of... It was very personal the way he presented himself. And, and his name was Furry Lewis. And I was like, oh my God. At 14, in 1975, I knew that the blues had come from Memphis. It was already like, you know, Memphis, home of the blues, birthplace of rock and roll. That was kind of like the thing. So I knew that the blues were from Memphis, but it had never occurred to me that the people making this music were still alive in Memphis. So that was my introduction to that notion. And about a year later, at my high school, Lo and behold, the opening act for the Rolling Stones appears during lunch hour on the porch. And it's Furry Lewis uh, picking, and um, the deal was you kind of put money in a, in, a, in a bucket, and Furry would, would play. And I was like, wait a minute, man. How did, the, how did the opening act for the Rolling Stones appear at my school? And I, I was led to an upperclassman who gave me his phone number. And I remember I went to the rotary dial phone in the hallway and called him up and said, and, and the guy had told me, call him up, he'll invite you over. So I called him up and he invited me over and I said, is there anything I can bring you? And he said, you can bring me a raw Wendy's hamburger and a pint of Ten High. Ten High is a uh, kind of cheap bourbon. So um, the raw Wendy hamburger I assumed was for his teeth. You know, he had a, had a gummit. And, um, and it says a lot about Memphis at the time that it was much easier for me as a 15-year-old to buy the pint of 10 high <laughs> than, than it was to get the ride to Furry Lewis's house. So I went to Furry's and I began to return there time after time because, well, okay, let's... Let me show you why. I found this great video of Furry performing at home that, um, that will g share with you for a couple minutes the experience I, I would have. Um, it's on a, uh, it's on a, I pulled it off a VHS called uh, Into the Blacks, Into the Blues. It's like a Gene Rosenthal, Adelphi Records. Yeah. Yeah. 
Alright, so this is kind of the thing I experienced. There was a lot of things going on there. I was a white suburban kid from solidly middle class background going to this guy's duplex. In like the way I knew to get to his house was turn right at the liquor store past the psychiatric hospital. And that was, you know, far from my home neighborhood. Here's my here's what I wrote about it in the book. For this 14-year-old among 50,000 rednecks on that hot football field, Hearing Furry was life-changing. The concert was an all-day 1970s spectacle with three bands opening plus the unscheduled bluesmen. I'd enjoyed the warm-up acts. The big rock and roll sounds were just like their recordings, only livelier. But Furry's playing was unlike anything I could have anticipated. The still small voice after the raging storms. His rhythms were slow, his songs full of space, his notes floated in the air. His music summoned us listeners instead of dazzling us with its size and force. His voice and laugh, the way the slide over his finger could elicit a moaning human voice from the guitar. There was an immediacy to his art that the Stones' big production could never match. The pageantry of the bands inspired awe, while Furry's intimacy let me feel the wrinkles on the hands wrapped around the guitar neck, the texture of the strings. He let me hear the human being. The raw power of Furry's personality was so infused into his music and stories that his songs became his life, and he took me places I did not know to times I couldn't have experienced. 
transubstantiation. And it really was that. It was like, it was this other world opening up to me. And, and Furry taught me to ask questions and to question my, um, my assumptions about how the world worked. Because it was, everybody old who I knew was a cousin of mine. And Furry had become a friend during these visits. So then about a year passed and I uh, went to a civic blues festival in Memphis and um, a riot nearly broke out. Let's see, I probably... Why do you call it a civic blues festival? Because it was open to the... It was a civic... It was the Beale Street Music Festival when it was real. Yeah, but it was it was what well, what's not civic about that? It was like I don't know, I never thought of it. I mean it was it was Pat's from Memphis and so pardon us while we have this debate. I never Well because it was you know I went down because I saw it advertised, you know, and I went down there and it was like I guess it was I guess Irving it was it was the second one. And and it was, you know, partly Sponsored by the government, was it not? Yeah, exactly. That's my point. It was a civic blues festival. All right, <laughs> All right this debate's over. <laughs> but it gave us the incident. And now, Pat has referred to the incident, which was I, I was now I'm like I, I'm I'm 16 and I can drive and. Remarkably, my parents gave me the car to go downtown that day. I remember, like, mid-afternoon, standing down front with my hand over one eye so I could see straight, and, and because there was this riot, near riot, about to happen. And Pat and her, and her compatriots were there with video cameras recording this, which I will prove to you with the evidence. I forget what Randall was bringing here from the stage. Which was? Beale Street is racism. Yeah. Tear down Beale Street. I, I, went back to the, I went back to the tapes when I was writing this book and I heard a line I'd never heard before, which was, Tear down Beale Street, the symbol of oppression. Which was Randall. So as a kid, the thing that really impressed me was the band was playing music. I'd always heard as a kid that rock and roll is the blues played fast, right? But it never made sense. I listened to the Stones, I listened to this and that, and like, it didn't make sense. And then I heard Mudboy and the Neutrons at this festival, and I connected the way that Furry Lewis was playing to the way that these guys were, were playing. And let me just share this event with you. you have, we're going to see the incident? We're going to see the incident. Oh, this is Letting to start our visit, then down in the Delta, where, as in countless yes. ages, gone and forgotten, visitors today find the fast growing metropolis. It only makes sense to introduce this with this corny Memphis history. Imposing public building. In springtime, when pink and white dogwood and flaming azaleas burst... The band will be introduced by Alex Chilton. ...invites both home folks and visitors on an enchanting pilgrimage through a score of breathtaking gardens. 
city schools and colleges, the buildings of Southwestern and Memphis are a fine example of collegiate Gothic architecture. But in this city of fascinating contrasts, one may drive in a few minutes from the peaceful beauty of Southwestern's campus to historic Beale Street. Now called Beale Avenue, this famous street is known to millions as the birthplace of the blues. The originator of this new kind of American folk music was W.C. Handy. In the little park which bears his name, our sound camera catches a typical jug band playing their own arrangement of Handy's immortal Memphis Blues. acoustic and the dancing girls weren't there and it was all you know everything was really nice nice and so we were here well this year the dancing girls came up and Marcia and Connie were dancing the band all their clothes on wear 12 layers of clothes so that I would never get naked I could keep taking things off and in the middle of the first song Danny came out on stage, you can see it in the video, whispering in my ear, they don't like the rock and roll, they don't like the dancing girls, they're pulling the plug, which is all he had to say to me. I told Irwin, you can hear it on the tape, you know, get off stage or get me off stage. I've got 45 minutes and I'm going to sit right here. And I thought, okay, well, we'll just have a little incident here, and this would be more fun than playing anyway. I saw two cops down in front of me grinning, and I thought, okay, what the hell, you know, I'm going for it. And I was wondering, that's what I did. do I have time to get a drink? <laughs> and after that, we, we didn't work for a while. So, there was this kerfuffle on stage. I'm a teenager in the audience, and I'm like, man, this is what they call the power of rock and roll. And I was, so, at that point, my life changed, and I, I was set on a course. And ultimately, I became friends with Dickinson, and I've got in this book a transcription of my first interview with Dickinson, which was really mind-blowing because um, everything I understood about pop music was turned upside down on its ear. And Jim, you know, Jim embraced the power of, 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 um, of amateurism and of mistakes over perfection. It was the Sam Phillips ideal. This was the whole notion of the spirit is more important than the perfection. And that has been my guiding principle since. So, uh, 
So now let's see the questions about recording studios and stacks. Okay, so so that's how I got into it. And and the thing I remember, the first thing I remember about stacks before I knew it was stacks was that um, Rufus Thomas, the funkiest man alive, even two decades after he's died, uh, would shill for some local commerce. I don't remember what the commercial was, but I would be at home on t and watching TV and, and the Funkiest Man Alive would come on saying, you know, buy these sports coats or, you know, get your car washed here. And it was like, man, whatever he says, I want to do that. And, and ultimately later in life I got to be friendly with Rufus Thomas. I used to write the um, Blues Music Awards, the Handy Awards, and, and Rufus was always the host. And it was never more fun than to show up at Rufus's house. Hey, Rufus, I'm bringing you the script. Okay, come on in. And I'd knock on the garage uh, entryway, and he'd let me in in his short pants matching pajamas. It was great. So, uh, so stacks kind of unfurled from that. You know, eventually I learned, oh, yeah, it, you know, its whole history, and eventually I wrote its whole history, but it was um, this sense of, I mean, by the time I got to be aware of Stacks, it had closed. It closed in 1975, 76. At that point, I'm like 15, uh, 14, 15. You know, I'm not aware of it. I only sort of put the pieces <coughs> together afterward. But all these guys, you know, when, when, when Stacks went down in Memphis, um, it was a major blow to the recording industry, but everybody was still there. It wasn't like, you know, the studio closed and everybody went away. They'd been recording hometowners, so everybody was still there, and and I could find, you know, you could go to the clubs and hear all these people, and I started remarkably, again, about Memphis. It was a wide-open town. I didn't appreciate this until much later, but, you know, I was 14 when I started going to bars, and and you could see anybody perform. That's how I met Mose Vinson, this great uh, barrel house piano player. I got a track of his on this on the soundtrack to to, to my book that they're selling here. Um, I remember driving down Madison and looking over and there's a new club, the sign, it was called Birth of the Blues. I was like, oh yeah, we got to go to that. You know, I was a passenger in the car. We, we started hanging out at Birth of the Blues and we met Moe's. The, the band would finish. It was like a five-piece old guys blues band. The band would finish, but Moe's would stay because I, th I think that's what Beryl, in my mind, Probably because of Moe's. That's what barrel house piano players do, you know. They don't stop playing. And, uh, and Moe's sat in the picture window of this, of this club and we would just stay forever while, while Moe's played. And um, there was questions about recording studios. So later I became a journalist. There was a, a time when every record store chain had its own magazine um, and I became a uh, reporter for the Tower Pulse and I would write, I was the Memphis columnist, you know, and so my job was to go 
I mean, it was my job, but it was part of my duties to go from studio to studio and report as to what was going on. And, um, and that got me into, you know, Ardent was always like the, the big studio in town because they had three studios in the facility and they were drawing all the big names. But, it, but there was plenty of other stuff going on all around town, and I would just, uh, you know, it was very easy to tap into all of that. It was very easy for me to tap into all that. And and the thing I learned was, you know, you go into a session and you stay really quiet, and you just observe. And it was great training. Um, it, 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 I really think the observational, you know, knowing how to observe and not impose yourself on a situation is great journalistic training and great documentary training. Um, I marked a couple passages in here that I want to share because they're kind of funny and because I like them. Uh, one's about Junior Kimbrough. Junior Kimbrough was a uh, Mississippi hill country guitarist. He um, which is very different from the Delta. You know, I, I, I remember when I learned that there was a difference, that like, you know, I had always assumed Mississippi, Mississippi blues was Delta blues. But then we started hearing these sounds. A guy named Tav Falco uh, came up, started playing around 1978, 79, and and one of Tav's, and, and in fact I have some Tav video will show, that uh, one of Tav's great things was to, was to bring, he, he said, there's great artists all around us that, that we don't see. And Tav's uh, modus operandi became, let me share, let me, since I know, since I, Tav, know all these artists, let me add them to my bill. Tab became a popular, like what he called, punkabilly act, and um, and he would bring R.L. Burnside or Junior Kimbrough or Cordell Jackson as his opening act, and these people who had already had their careers and were older were getting new young fans like me because of what Tav was doing. So that's where I became exposed to Junior Kimbrough. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, you, I can go down to Mississippi to, and hear Junior in his home environment. So that became a popular thing to do. You could do it every Sunday. His, his gig was a, it began as a house party on Sundays, and eventually it moved to, a, um, to what everybody called Junior's juke joint. So here's a little thing about... <laughs> About about Junior's juke joint. Um, R. L. Burnside lived next to that joint, and he played there often. R. L. and Junior became the heart and soul of Fat Possum Records. They recorded at the joint. Though fruit beer was never offered at the Chulahoma place, the first time I'd heard. Junior was at his house and all the furniture had been put into the bedroom and the whole living room was wide open and the band was in a corner and all the space was taken up by dancers and there was a door to the kitchen 
cut in half. So the bottom half was closed, the top half was open, and you would go there and order your beer. And the first time I went there, she said, beer or fruit beer? Actually, that's a funny thing I should read, too. Well, I won't. But, um, but I was like, fruit beer? You know, the two words put next to each other were, I couldn't go there. Um, apparently, but I went with my friend Belinda, who... <laughs> I found correspondence with her afterwards, and she, and she was talking about our the, how much fruit beer we drank. So apparently we did drink the fruit beer. It was PGA Punch is what it was. Pure grain alcohol and high C. <laughs> Hawaiian Punch, yeah. Um, though fruit beer was never offered at the Chulahoma place, I did taste all kinds of white lightning, some of which was quite smooth and appealing. More memorable is the worst white whiskey I ever tasted. It was a full moon night, and a group of us were cooling off out front, a mixture of locals and visitors. Two white guys in hunting camouflage opened a jar and passed it around. They were leading a discussion about coon dicks, the penises of raccoons made into necklaces and worn for good luck. <laughs> I was not interested in the coon dick they offered me, but I did taste their whiskey. I almost gagged, but my scientific impulse won out, and I quickly tasted it again to confirm it was as bad as it had first seemed, which it was. Its bouquet was of freshly mowed lawn clippings. <laughs> And it went down like long, thin shards of glass with an, after, with an aftertaste of rusted barbed wire. Rusted may be assigning it too much character. I distinctly re recall that whole... It's like, you know how you can be totally blitzed and there's some images that are imprinted in your brain? That, that whole thing was like, whoa. Wild night. Um... And Junior was like, he, the, the whole Hill Country thing was more like a trance blues. The Delta thing was this very slide guitar-y, um, keening kind of sound, uh, you know, that we're all very familiar with. But the um, Hill Country was much more of like a one or two chord thing that just repeated and repeated. And you would, it was way more dance worthy. And, and I kind of think it was like a rave you know, for a different crowd. A rave with soul. Let me read you a passage about James Carr. James Carr is the soul singer uh, who's best known for recording Dark End of the Street, the original Dark End of the Street, which is often um, called the, or James is called the world's greatest soul singer, and that's often called the, uh, you know, the, the best soul song of all time. And I really didn't know about James Carr until I picked up Peter Goralnik's Sweet Soul m Music. I picked up, I bought Sweet Soul Music, but I'd picked up Lost Highway before, and I remember like thumbing through it and seeing the names. I was like, man, what's this guy going to teach me about my hometown? And I tossed the book aside, and then Sweet Soul Music I bought, and I was on like page three. I was like, whoa, I got a lot to learn. And um, one of the great stories in there was about James Carr and just how traumatic and uh, mixed up his life had been. So about, let's see, 
when this was. 1992, for the LA Weekly, actually, I um, wrote this piece. James Carr was making a comeback, and he had an appearance uh, arranged at Tramps in New York. And uh, they sent me over to talk to James. I remember knocking on the door. You know, there, there was no way to get in touch with him, but I had his address, so I just knocked on the door. And he was touched to be uh, to receive the recognition of a local person because um, all these, all the soul artists, all the Stax artists, they were not not until Elvis died, I think, did. Memphis began to appreciate um, its musical heritage. And it only appreciated it then because when Elvis died, I distinctly recall the phone lines went down. It was like, and, and you couldn't buy a flower in the city. There was this massive influx of people and all this worldwide interest. And the racist city fathers who ran the place, it dawned on them, oh, wait, you mean that music we've been dismissing and disparaging all this time, it's worth something. So they got into it for the money. And, 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 and James was kind of a victim of that whole mindset. And, uh, and so he really appreciated that someone was there to ask him about his life. It wasn't often that it happened. Um, but James wasn't mentally fit. Here's, my, here's a little bit of this piece. James Carr is waiting for me outside his apartment, ready for our lunch appointment at a nearby greasy spoon. His eyes are focused. I can imagine what he was like appearing at Quentin Clanche's home in the middle of the night. You might just think he was quiet. At CK's kitchen, he chooses a booth next to the large picture window our images reflecting. He discusses his New York gig and he's pleased. He tells me that he and Clanch recently wrote a song together. He can't remember what it's about, but I know Quentin can think of it. He'll never forget. And he laughs. I've been learning songs and recording them, he continues. I really like sentimental songs. I can really feel sentimental songs. But I've been recording all types. Country, western, blues, rock and roll. Sometimes the band puts, puts the tracks down when I'm not there. I like for the band to be there. You can get, you can get together more of it, knowing what everybody is going to do and knowing what you're going to do too. But if it's already done, you just have to catch a hold of it and go on and do it. Dark End of the Street, he says, was cut live with a band. I wonder aloud what makes that song so good. It's really simple, he says. It's really a simple song. Just sing it the way you talk. And then James Carr sings the whole first verse and chorus of his biggest hit with plates clattering in the background, silverware falling on the floor, and conversations at nearby tables uninterrupted. With each line, he makes our present in that diner more ridiculous. This voice should be on big stages. When I think he's through, he continues, and I imagine that the whole diner will be suddenly still, then burst into applause. I'll look at the newspaper on the counter, and the headline will read, James Carr is back. People will know. He finishes singing, and he waits a beat. 
It's just easy, he says. And I arranged it by the way I read it, the way I read the words. Our food plates clatter onto the table. I'll, I'll go on for a little more. Car makes eyes at a girl seated. He was really big into this. Car makes eyes at a girl seated in a booth across from us and also at our waitress. If I had a hit and made a lot of money, he says, I'd put it in the bank. I don't know if I don't know if I need a house, but I need a place of my own. Can't have no privacy living with my sister. Whenever I get ready to do something, I have to go to a hotel. So I might get me an apartment, but I think I'd rather stay at the hotel where them women's be at. Um, questions at this point? Let, let me throw it back out for, for y'all. Yes, sir. Isaac Hayes. Okay, so a friend of mine, the question was, did I ever get to meet Isaac Hayes? A friend of ours says about Memphis. Memphis is the town where nothing ever happens, but the impossible always does. And so Isaac Hayes is a great example. You'd go to the health food store for lunch and wait in the buffet line, and you'd be standing behind Isaac Hayes. You'd go, hey, you're Isaac Hayes. And man, he would. you'd get into the greatest conversation. He'd be eating alone at the table. You could sit with him. He was, anybody could talk to him. This was like, the 90s, so it was well after Shaft, you know, but, um, and when I was younger, in my teens, before I could drive, uh, there were two limousines in town, this was before, you know, every rich person in the world had their own limousine, and so we'd see one in traffic, me and my brother would be sitting in the back seat of the station wagon, we'd say, mom, mom, pull up. And you could tell when you could see the license plate. If it said Moses, it was Isaac Hayes. And if it didn't, it was Elvis Presley. (laughs) Swear to God. Other questions? Yep. Rent party, yeah. It actually comes from, it was an idea I had uh, in my, in like 1980 when I was a sophomore in college, I took a course on the Harlem Renaissance and I learned about rent parties at the Harlem, in in, in Harlem, which was uh, when people couldn't make their rent or didn't think they'd be able to make their rent, they would throw a party and invite people and charge at the door and sell food and drinks. And it was a way for friends to help friends get through a tough time. And I just thought, wow, that would be a really cool name for a a collection. You know, like if I ever got to become a writer and if I ever got to make a collection, I wanted to call it Rent Party because kind of you'd already have written these pieces and been paid for it. And so now you're packaging them and you're selling it again. Of course, it didn't work out like that because like half this material had never seen the light of day and was new, you know, new writing or old stuff that had never been published. And it was, it was way more work than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but I still hung with the name because I, I, I like that as a, as a name for a collection. Well, tape recordings, you know, I was, I, um, 
Man, if I had made copious notes in high school when it was wide open and I would wake up in the morning and forget what had happened the night before, it was wild town. I mean, I just can't tell you. We would go, you know, there was blues people everywhere. We'd go down to this place called Blues Alley and uh, we'd see little Laura Dukes who we saw her back in that video. You could see all these people. And, uh, and then the club would close and like downtown was a ghost town and you could go we, we would find fire escapes and we'd start climbing buildings and you know leap from roofs to roofs it was just it was just great and no one ever carded us that that's the thing too I don't remember like how how we got around I guess we had older friends you know it was it was now now that I've got kids who've been who've been of that age you know and one of them particularly was kind of wild I was like oh my god and but I think you know Having been through it, I was aware of it and looking out for it. Whereas my parents, they were kind of oblivious to what was going on. I, you know, I'd come home every night. I'd shake their foot at the bed. Hey, I'm home. You know, and now and now I'll go in my bed and pass out. <laughs> and that was really wild. More. Uh, I always think of myself. I don't. I don't play an instrument. I always think of myself as the guy in the audience who has a pen in his pocket. And, and because that's really what I was and what I did, you know, I was interested in all that and I would take notes, I'd go home. You know, I don't, I don't have copious notes. I have a lot of recordings, but I would, you know, go home sometimes. And my dad was a, is a storyteller. And so I think that was kind of became ingrained into me. And I don't think of myself... You know, I, I, I don't sit around parties and entertain large groups of people, but I love composing those stories and, and you know, making them work as a written piece or as a film piece. Cliff. Arthur Big Boy Crudup. I have very little, I have a uh, secondhand story about Arthur Big Boy Crudup, which is from Dick Waterman. Um, who is a Dick Waterman who uh, booked uh, blues bands in Boston in the 60s and wound up uh, he's one of the guy, one of the three guys who discovered Sunhouse, rediscovered Sunhouse and and um, and he became the advocate for Sunhouse and Big Boy Crudup and these other people uh, and he would go he told me he took Big Boy to uh, Columbia or somewhere and, and tried to get compensation for their use of his work and um, had a meeting with John Hammond and left out of the building and you know and 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 Mr. Crudup said to Dick you know what happened and Dick had explained to him you know they said yeah we use your songs and no we're not going to pay you yeah I don't think you can get away with that today, you know, but then, but Big Boy didn't ever get to see the benefit of that. Yes, sir? Uh, I'd like to ask you about the band that Atlantic Records put together with Aretha Franklin. The Dixie Flyers. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about those, those people and, and just that blend with Aretha and, and that song, uh, no, they did with the Dixie Flyers. They did Spirit in the Dark. Um, okay, 
I thought there was a band from, from Mendes that worked with a rebuff yep. on Chain, Chain, Chain. Chain, Chain, Chain? Mm, no, I don't, I'm not sure who's on Chain, 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 but, but there is a band, you know, uh, Jerry Wexler wanted to, the head of Atlantic Records, wanted, saw the beauty of the house band in Memphis. He came and um, first he worked at Stax, where Booker T and the MGs were the house band. Then there's a falling out between Wexler and Stax, and he goes to Muscle Shoals, and he works in Muscle Shoals with Aretha, where there's a house band. That's where they record... Um, I'm blanking the the first big hit. No, not respect. Um, whatever it is, but uh, uh, and and so, but he sees the house band, and then he forms. Then Jerry wants to retire to Florida and be on the boat. And in, at Criteria Sound, he forms his own house band. And for that, he gets Jim Dickinson and the band that be, that becomes known as the. Dixie Flyers, yeah. Actually, half those guys, after after this whole experience, they end up becoming the choral reefer band behind Jimmy Buffett. Um, but but to me, the most important thing is that Wexler respects the house band. He says, oh, it's a good thing to have your own group of musicians who are going to be able to um, work with anybody, any, anybody I bring in, and they will, and they will make their they they're not going to be about themselves. They're going to be about the artist I'm bringing in. You know, it kind of takes a certain a certain kind of ego to uh, fade into the background and let the star be the star. So. They cut uh, Spirit in the Dark. I remember Dickinson talks about um, about Aretha at the Grand Piano and having a whole set of, uh, I think it was Brass Monkeys, this uh, pre-mixed alcoholic drink. Um, she had them, you know, staged at the on the piano, which was kind of bold because she's coming from a gospel background. And, uh, and they cut... Spirit in the Dark. The same band also records behind Jerry Jeff Walker. Uh, who's Carmen McRae? Carmen McRae. Uh, Sam Sham, Lulu. Uh, Go Pat. <laughs> you know, I worship at the altar of Victor. Yeah, yeah. So, so to me, the whole thing there is the import is the respect for a house band and. The greatest example of that that continues on is the high rhythm section. The band at High Records who becomes most famous for backing Al Green, but um, continues today. Unfortunately, the guitarist Teeny Hodges died about three years ago, but yeah, maybe more. But the 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 other two brothers and the drummer still work together and you can go to high you know yeah. Willie, Willie Mitchell who ran high uh, found the sound he was looking for in 1969 and you go into high today and it is 1969 the, uh, the um, fiberglass you know is draped from this ceiling like this. It looks like it has been cleaned since 1969. It's to clean it, and uh, the whole s s studio is like stamped in time. It's where, um, but the f 
the fact that it, that it works is proven by it's where Bruno Mars cut Uptown Funk. So like it's still making hits after all these years. Um, Spirit in the Dark was Spooner, Tommy Cox, Spooner, Roger Hawkins, Jimmy Johnson, and Joe South, and the Sweetest Boy. But Spooner. Yeah. More questions? You touched on Al Green. Mm hmm. The church? The church. What a moving experience. But are there any, you know, these kind of. Al's, Al, Al Green is, he's, he's, so I had a little bit of experience with Al Green. I produced the box set called Anthology. And for that, I was writing the liner notes and trying to get in touch with him. And uh, it was summer, I remember. And, uh, I call, you know, like I had a, a series of numbers. I had his church, his office, and I don't know, some other number long before cell phones. And um, I reached someone who said they would pass the message on to him. And I sat at my phone for like three days, uh, you know, waiting. And finally, I, I went to take a shower. You know, like, I mean, I really sat at my phone waiting for the call from Al Green. And I come out of the shower and my little green light is blinking. And I'm like, no way. I play it and it's like, hey, Robert Gordon, this is Al Green. And I'm like, oh my God. And it wasn't like uh, Star 69, you know. So I, I had these three numbers. I just like, bam, 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 calling him. Hey, Al Green just called me. I'm trying to, to you know, no way to get through. No way to get through. I think of Al Green as a guy who's, like, we're on one plane. And Al Green's on this other plane. And Al Green's plane intersects with our plane sometimes. And you can, and when that happens, you can connect. You know, but Al's, like, in his own world. And the church, uh, yeah, the, the whole church thing is it, highly recommended for anybody who goes. I mean, it's like made for Memphis visitors because church doesn't start till 11. He doesn't get there till 12. You know, it's over at 2. It's like you can go out Saturday night and do everything you want to do and see Al Green on Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great thing. How did Memphis then also become the hub of Power Pop? Big Star? I mean, obviously, Alex Children was in the box tops and they were kind of a white soul. Yeah. But then how did he flip to kind of British invasion and then with the scruffs and Tommy Home and Fargo and others? Okay, so like this, uh, the question is like uh, Big Star, 1971, 72 to 4, and then Tommy Ho and afterwards, all through. <laughs> Let's not disparage the dead, Pat. Um, so, what that what that's about to me is Beatles appreciation. You know, you had um, you you had John Fry, who founds Ardent Recording in early mid '60s in his in his in what Jim called Granny's sewing room. You know, the the back house. And, and ultimately moves it to a recording studio on National where Led Zeppelin mixes number two and then ultimately moves it to the center of Memphis where it is today. Um, but 
but but Fry, it that the whole power pop thing to me is about really keen ears. They were they were into the Beatles, but they were really I think into George Martin. They were into how these things were recorded and how they were mixed and how it sounded, how it had so much dimension. And Chris Bell, I remember Randall talking to Randall and Randall saying to me, "Let me see if I can get the quote." Um, he had he's uh, on Chris Bell in particular, and saying uh, that that Chris had uh, uh, you know some some great sonic sensibility. I think it was really it all stemmed from Chris, and then Alex's collaboration with him, and then Fry in the mix. And so so magic in a bottle. You know? Fry is the one who has the recording studio. Who's a genius? Uh, who's a genius. Uh, Chris is the one who has these um, these ears that are seeking all these sounds, and Alex is the one. Alex is kind of like the John Lennon, you know. He's the contrarian and um, and the one who wants to push it to an edge. It was a great thing, you know. Alex and Chris were really great together. As much as as bad as they fell apart, they were really great together and them having you know no success with that but but establishing a local reputation for it is how there became the aftermath of Tommy Hoen and the scruffs and you know that's really kind of the it's a it's a very contained the whole power pop thing in Memphis is small and contained it's uh, I mean you got the Randy band and a few other but you know yeah it's not, it's not, you know, you, and the other great thing is you listen to that Big Star, the, uh, the first Big Star record, I think it is, and you hear this combination of, like, like the Beatles wanted to come to Memphis to record Rubber Soul at Stax, and in a way those Big Star records are a suggestion of what that would have been like, because you get that sense of, um, Pop with this R&B in influence. What's the song with the the big star song with the saxophone on the first record? I mean, it's yeah. not feel. Da, 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 I can't. Yeah, is it? No, nah, whatever it is. But yeah, you hear it. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's. But but it really there. It goes back to John Fry. It's like a guy who had the means, who had the interest. I mean, in a way, Fry and Sam Phillips shared this interest in the radio. There's this, you know, the, the romanticism of radio is, is kind of all-powerful um, for people slightly older than me. I mean, I remember we, we had transistor radios and but it wasn't by, by the time I came along it wasn't you know we didn't have to hide them under our blanket at night to listen and the older guys did and so um, I think you get that sense of of you know the forbidden music and the Beatles kind of combined a couple more things and we'll wrap it up anybody else got a question Anything here? Let me uh, see if I can find something else to read to you. Um, 
Yeah, so let's see. I remember um, I got to go on this tour. My friends Doug Easley and Davis McCain ran a recording studio in Memphis, and it was where Alex would record later. And uh, one day a German guy calls up and says he wants to record a whole bunch of Memphis bands and make a tour and, and make a, an album out of it and, and, and make a European tour. So uh, Doug and Davis did the recording and they told the guy who should call me to talk about the, uh, about, uh, about, about organizing the tour. So I put together four Memphis bands and this guy had picked Towns Van Zandt uh, as like the fifth band. And so we all flew over to Europe and I remember going down the next morning to the hotel lobby. I was the tour manager, so I, I, I was assigned tour management, so I was like, I, I, I'll be the responsible guy and I'll show up you know, on time in the lobby. And there's Towns Van Zandt sitting in this high-backed winged chair looking like an album cover. And, uh, and we all, we were like, everybody was in awe of Towns because we, it's sort of a Memphis thing, I think, to sort of, you know, you feel slightly inferior. And there's towns with this, like, great history. And uh, and we get on the bus, we go to the first gig, and then we sleep in the hotel. The, the second gig, we checked in to the place, and we're unloading and we're setting up, and I had left something on the bus. And I went on the bus to get it, and I surprised towns. And towns, towns, it, you know, you have that space where the suitcases are up at the top, and Towns' suitcase was splayed open, and I remember his hand was on it, and the other hand was holding a fifth of vodka, and he, it was up like this, and his um, Adam's apple was, you know, going up and down. I was like, no problem, man. You know, I didn't pay Towns, and I got my stuff, and I left the bus, and in a way, I think that signaled to Towns, oh, they're cool, you know? And so it turned into this great party where, uh, where everybody tried to keep up with Towns for 10 days. It was quite an exercise. Um, so I like the beginning of this article. At Towns Van Zandt's funeral, his longtime friend and fellow songwriter Guy Clark stepped to the microphone and adjusting a guitar around his neck, said, I guess I booked this gig 30-some years ago, because you felt that with Towns. Towns was a man of glorious self-destruction, full of life and talent, and scared of both. He'd been drinking cheap, cheap vodka for more of his 52 years than he hadn't. And when he died on New Year's Day of a heart attack following hip surgery, two days after his final recording session, he was as skinny and frail as Hank Williams, exactly 44 years earlier. Like the Federales in Towns' song, Pancho and, Lefty, Pancho and Lefty, made famous by Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, and Emmylou Harris, among others, death only let Towns, quote, live so long out of kindness, I suppose. To be around Towns was to laugh and have fun. To hear Towns' songs was to face desperation and dark beauty. He told hilarious stories about his former shock therapist, about botching record deals, about talking his way out of trouble, and he sang piercing songs. 
Living on the road, my friend, is how Poncho and Lefty opens, and it became a credo of sorts for towns. He toured constantly and extensively throughout America and Europe, laying himself bare with just an acoustic guitar in his voice, plagued by stage fright, but uncomfortable, but comfortable spinning yarns backstage with strangers. When he hit his full stride, Towns was going slow enough to make music of the space between the notes. Questions anymore? Should we wrap this thing up? Oh, wait a minute. No. More video. Tav. Tav. Okay, great. Final note here. We'll go out on a video of uh, Tav Falco, who, um, like I said, comes onto the scene in 1977, 8, 9, and he's pointing all of us in the audience to all these artists around us who we weren't familiar with. Um, from Tav, I, I learned like tons of Memphis history just by being in the audience. And the thing about the Panther Burns was, um, aside from Alex Chilton, none of them could really play. And that as soon as they would get a groove going, then, then Alex would um, like throw a curveball at the band, and they would kind of lose their place and have to have to scramble to find it. And and it was the it was the yearning to be a good band that made them a great band because like they weren't they none of them had the talent, but they all they all strived to be this thing. And in the audience, you could feel that that attempt. And, and it was infectious, and they could fill a dance floor and totally keep it going for a really, really long time. I guess that's really from about like 1981 on. So this that I'm going to show you is from 1979. They hadn't quite perfected things. Four things you got to know. 1979, um, this is, uh, you'll hear mention of a federal grant which is uh, Randall Lyon had been involved with a group of um, videographers and... Well, what's yes, Televista. Televista. Um, they're, they're, they got, they got a NEH grant? Randall was this guy who could talk about anything and make it entrancing. Bob Palmer uh, Antiques, furniture, flowers. I remember walking around my yard with Randall's. Like my yard was never so interesting as when I walked around it with him. He spoke, the, he spoke several languages. He went into the army. Uh, I as an intelligence, yeah. So, so, so they get this money to do slow, slow scan telephone transmission. This is what fax machines are going to become. But this was way earlier and. And in uh, Toronto, Memphis, New York, and San Francisco, Vancouver, there's like five art groups. Take a, a headset from a phone apart and take two alligator clips and clip them onto the part of the phone where you would speak into it, and then it would send the signal. Visual images. It would send a static visual image through the phone lines, and here we go. And we, we got on TV in Memphis and did this with the Panther Burns as our soundtrack. God, I love it. Oh, man. Excellent. Dickinson called this Gorilla's Gorilla video. Not Gorilla's, but Gorilla's like warfare. 
So um, you'll hear talk of the federal grant. You'll hear talk about the king and queen of Cotton Carnival because this goes on in in Memphis at that time. They still had the Cotton Carnival, which was like you know cotton's what made Memphis uh, the thing, but it was also like built on um, it, it defined the uh, racist uh, intentions of the whole. Delta was built on, you know, just like who had, whose whose fabric was silk and whose was burlap, whose who lived in the big house and who had wind blowing through was all about who owned the land and who worked the the land. So the Cotton Carnival was this celebration of the harvest, but it was very white and and and. Ultimately, like in the 50s, they began. There was an African and an African American response called Cotton Makers Jubilee. Let's see. So we, we got the uh, 79. We got the federal grant. We got Cotton Carnival. And there's one more thing you need to know. I made a note of it. Let me see what it was. because I don't want you to be lost in here. Oh, and the slow scan phone lines, okay. So this occurs at like 7.30 in the morning. So bear in mind at this time, Cotton Carnival would have royalty and they would yes. elect the king and queen. The king and queen. And their court and they would get on these barges and they'd come down the Mississippi River to the banks where they used to unload the cotton. Big and, fireworks. And big fireworks and big like secret society like Mardi Gras. It was, yeah, it was Memphis's version of Mardi Gras. And Marge was having the king and queen of Cotton Carnival on her show. And this was like, what, 78? 79. 79? The band wasn't quite. I mean, Randall talked her into this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Wait a minute. It took us a minute. the The machine has to warm up, or the. Swear it's going to come on. This is what happened when we started the evening testing it. Bear with me, it's worth it. Oh, that's 
our music, is that right? <laughs> We'd like to do, the Pantherburns would like to do one more tune. Wait a minute, wait a minute. But that may be the worst sound I've ever heard from Alex. <laughs> the loveliest thing Thank you very much. <laughs> That's what you want, though, I'm, I'm assuming. Well, the best of the worst is what we're after. But this, uh, wait a minute, let me get all this back. Are you all also part of the federal grant of money? No, we're, we're simply an orchestra to accompany this, this image feed as if, um, you know, you have a soundtrack and then you have a picture track. And in this case, it's a live situation. So we're the live orchestra to accompany the imagery. And we're not, we're not well, under any support. If I realized that, I'm not sure I would have wanted you to have represent <laughs> the king and queen of Cotton Cardinal. That would not have been my selection of music. I mean, I don't understand. Well, I don't think this. anyone else is playing music like this in Memphis or maybe anywhere else in the world. And so, I, in, in, I don't in that think case, they are <laughs> in, in that case, we're doing something quite different. You see, we're doing something like that, that is not part of the establishment, that is not part of our everyday environment. We're do, we, we, have, we have to create an anti-environment to make more visible real musicians, people you know, who are early Memphis performers. Um, people well, why do you have to be anti to do it? Because it's all invisible to us. We, we can't see what's around us. There, there are blues people here. Who don't really have exposure. There are rockabilly artists in Memphis who don't have any exposure. We don't really exist here. They're part of our environment. We see them every day, but yet they're invisible to us. We take them for granted. So it takes a group like us who can create contrast and create focus. Do people pay you to play this? Uh, occasionally. <laughs> but we're not in it for the money. You know, we're doing something else. Uh, well, I don't know if it's art. It's, it's, it's art damage. You're really thing. very bitter, aren't you? I'm not bitter about anything. I get exhilarated by this kind of music. <laughs> Highly exhilarated. And so if you have an outlet, then that brings the exhilaration to the forefront. It, it brings it to a peak, yes. Why don't you introduce the band members to us? This band is Pantherburn. And we have uh, on synthesizer Eric Hill and Vincent. <laughs> Ross Johnson on drums, uh, Rick Ivey on trumpet, Axel Chitlin on lead guitar, <laughs> and Gustavo, Gustavo Falco on guitar and vocals. We would like to do one more tune, which is a rock and roll tango. Gustavo, we're not quite ready for it. Okay? <laughs> we're going to take another break here on Straight Talk, and we'll be back to the studio in just a moment. <laughs> Thank y'all for coming out. I'll be signing books. Love to answer your questions. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.